Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Um, well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, great pleasure to welcome you here um, this afternoon for the launch of uh, Steve Fitzgerald's memoir on his life engaging Asia and especially, of course, um, China. Uh, I'll begin, as we usually do at Griffith, by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today and pay respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And I will um, also recognise some special guests who are here with us. Of course, our our author, um, Steve um, Fitzgerald, about whom I will say something a little further uh, in a moment. Uh, Captain Casper Kuypers, the Honorary Consul for Netherlands, who's a a dedicated supporter of uh, the Institute's activities. Thank you for coming. Professor Colin McCarris is here, our own living treasure, Griffith's own living treasure on, on China. Um, and uh, Colin will say a few things uh, in a moment. But, but I should also note that he recently received a prestigious China Book Special Contribution Award. Um, he is, Colin is the, uh, the 23rd recipient, apparently, Colin, um, of this award since its establishment in, um, in early 2000s. Um, Marnie Dunn is here. Marnie, as many of you may know, is the, the wife of our late friend um, Hugh Dunn, also, of course, uh, an Australian ambassador to China. And um, he, I'll, I'll say a bit more about um, Hugh's contribution uh, in a moment. There are some GAI board members present, Clive Hildebrand and I think Kathleen Turner, and Julian Rosenthal, who was playing... Um, for you on the courtyard there. I, I thank him. Uh, he is a graduate of the Griffith Conservatorium. And I have apologies from our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian O'Connor, who unfortunately was uh, detained elsewhere today. Well, I, I'm absolutely delighted as the director of the Institute to have the opportunity to launch uh, Steve's book here in Queensland. Um, the Institute, of course, is, is dedicated to promoting Griffith's uh, wider and deeper engagement in Asia, and, and by that means also <coughs> promoting and contributing to Australia's active engagement in the, in the region. Um, this has been our mission for over a decade, and, and we regard the promotion of, of books and writing um, which uh, deal with Asian themes and, and topics as what might be called part of our core business. So it's particularly pleasing to be here with Steve um, this morning. And, and as I said earlier, um, Marnie Dunn is in the audience, and, and I think it's a particularly appropriate that I acknowledge um, Marnie's presence, um, but, but by in doing so, acknowledge the um, tremendous contribution that her late husband, Hugh, um, made to this enterprise about writing in relation to Asia. Um, Hugh, of course, as I said, was an Australian ambassador to China, and once he retired from the Australian Foreign Service, uh, he came to Griffith, and he was the editor of a series called uh, Australians in Asia, which I regard as uh, a very important set of writings on Australia's engagement with the region, post-war engagement with the region. Um, That series, um, copies can be obtained, but not easily, unfortunately, um, is not only a great legacy, I think, to, to Hugh's work here at Griffith, um, but I do think it's a, an enduring and valuable account of Australia's post-war engagement with uh, Asia. And, and, Steve, I'm not sure you may have even contributed to that series. I can't, I can't remember whether you were one of the authors or not. 
It's, uh, it's an important memoir, it's an important record of Australia's engagement with the region. Um, all of which brings me, of course, to our guest. Um, many of you will know Steve uh, as Australia's first ambassador to China after recognition in 1972. But of course, um, he has been um, much more than that, as his book um, retells. Uh, he has been one of those very annoying people, I suppose one might say, who have constantly reminded us um, of the importance to Australia of Asia and how, and indeed how not, um, to engage effectively with the countries of the region. So, of course, he's been a diplomat, uh, to be sure, uh, but he's been a teacher, uh, he's been an advocate, uh, he's been an advisor to governments, um, and he has been a sage, I think, on the challenges that Australia faces in trying to engage effectively with uh, our neighbourhood, and of course particularly um, China, which of course is a passion of his. Um, and he hasn't given up this work. Uh, obviously the book testifies to his long-term determination to continue with this engagement activity, and like all good professors, he still thinks uh, there are things people, he can teach people and, and we can learn from his readings, and, and that's particularly true in relation to this book. But, so I, I encourage you to, um, to read, um, or at least, very least, dip into um, Comrade Ambassador. There are plenty of pity things... Um, to read in there, and he has to say, uh, including the last paragraph of the book, which caught my attention, Steve. Um, and I'll just read this out very quickly. The dynamics of Asia will not let Australia just go away to some imagined Anglospheric haven. Our interest and our benefit lie in accepting that we are part of this region, a part of Asia, which means we have to understand Asia at least as well as they understand us. I can be optimistic about the Australian people because they have shown themselves able to understand and to change. And this is a bit close to the bone, I have to say, Steve, uh, but he says, um, but about our politicians, question mark. <laughs> but maybe we're making progress in light of recent events in, in Canberra. Um, we will hear something from Steve uh, in a moment. Uh, uh, in the meantime, it's a very great pleasure to welcome my colleague, Colin McCarris, to the podium. Uh, Colin will make a few introductory remarks uh, about Steve and their work together in China. Uh, and from my part, uh, thank you all for coming. It's a great delight to see you all here. And I look forward to talking to you after we're finished. Thanks, Thanks very much, Russell. It's a great privilege and a great honour for me to add to what Russell said about Steve. Um, I um, have known Steve for a long time and I'm honoured to count him as a good friend. Can I begin with an anecdote? We got our PhDs on the same day, not only on the same day in fact, but at the same, the same ceremony. He went on the stage before me because F is earlier in the alphabet than N. But, um, so that, that goes back quite a long way I think. Um, I think um, I have a great deal of admiration and liking, indeed love, for Steve. I think he has contributed enormously to Australia's relations with Asia and with China in particular, and to the academic debate about that. I, would, I just want to highlight a couple of points. 
Firstly, he's not only a, a, a diplomat, and um, he, he was called, um, he called Comrade and Ambassador by uh, Gough Whitlam, and that's the title of the book. But he's also a very, very good scholar, and he, is, he loves to help people, and I think that's a really important uh, characteristic. The, the list of people whom he has helped is so long that I, I wouldn't even attempt to, to begin the list. And I think that's really important. Um, and he's also been very active in terms of uh, the economy, economic relations between Australia and, and um, Asia and China in particular, and I think that's also important. Um, and also, I want to comment on his love of culture. Um, that was already mentioned, I think, but I, I want to emphasise that because I think it's, it's really important. Now, I also, if I may, just want to make a couple of points about the book. Um, which I read carefully and which I think is an excellent book. Um, I'm not going to give a full review of it, but um, I just want to make a couple of points. Firstly, um, it is, as um, we've been told, it's a memoir, um, a kind of autobiography, but it's much, much more than that. Um, I, I love the personal touches that come into the book. They really, I found them very moving, actually. Um, and I, because I think those detailed, those detailed personal touches really add interest to a book. But it's not only that. There is also a lot in that, that book of very thoughtful and analytical thoughts, very uh, analytical ideas about Australia's relations with, with Asia and about Australia's relations with China in particular. And I find that combination of the personal detail and the thoughtful analysis um, to be very inspiring. And I really commend this book to you. Um, can I make one other final point? Because I know you want to hear, listen to him and not to me. Um, I was very struck by the, not, the, not only the last paragraph, which Russell, um, which Russell uh, quoted, but also the second last paragraph. Because the second last paragraph is all about Bach and about um, Western music and the, the Leipzig festival of Bach and um, his love of um, Western culture. He was just telling me over, over coffee that he now spends a lot of time in Germany and he loves German culture and German music. And I share that with him greatly. Um, and my last point before I sit down, I really feel very strongly that we should be engaging with, with Asia, but I don't think we should be stopping to admire Western culture. I, I think that both um, can, can coexist, and I think they should coexist. And I think that um, to admiration for one's own culture, I count myself as a, as a Westerner, um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't love somebody else's culture and can't promote somebody else's culture. I said it would be the last point, but can I make one, one more? Just, I'm sorry, one, one more. Um, because I, I um, thought of it while I was saying that other one, and I think it's, I think it's quite important. I think it's quite important. Um, he finishes, the, Steve finishes the book with a bit of a criticism about leadership, political leadership in this country. And I must say I think he's got a point. 
and I think it is really quite, um, quite a distressing point. He talks about the failure of both sides of politics, really, to really think about our relations with, um, with Asia and with China in particular. And I hope that um, what uh, Russell said about the events of the last week, I must say I'm quite um, positive about them, but I have some misgivings also. I'm, in particular, if I may be controversial, I'm really quite worried by the fact that the Labour Party, which, as Steve rightly points out in his book, has been at the vanguard of um, establishing our relations with China and with Asia, now seems to be in the vanguard of resisting them. And I think that is um, very, very worrying. Um, I'd like to introduce and uh, call on Steve to, to uh, speak. I think this is a brilliant book and I really commend it to everybody and I commend Steve to everybody too. Thank you everyone and thank you for coming. Um, and thanks to the Griffith uh, Asia Institute, my connection with Griffith goes a long way back uh, to uh, before it was even established. And conversations with John Willett, who was the uh, Vice-Chancellor-designate, about uh, the concept for this new university. And I don't know how many of you here are aware of it, but originally the idea was going to be that every student at Griffith, no matter what faculty they were in, science, economics, whatever, would learn an Asian language. Um, I mean, this was quite a revolutionary idea. Uh, and because I went off and did uh, other things, I'm not quite certain why uh, it didn't turn out that way. But um, anyway, that's where my association with uh, Griffith uh, began. And I, I, may I thank the Griffith Asia Institute for inviting me and for arranging this uh, event. Thank you, Russell, for your uh, kind uh, introductory words. I must say, when you were still in the National Parliament, I used to think you ought to be Foreign Minister. Um, now, of course, the wheel turned and, and you, know, that, you didn't get that chance. But, but I think it's great that you're here uh, with, uh, with the Griffith Asia Institute and, and in a position and with a platform to inform uh, the public debate about uh, Asia and about Australia's relations with Asia. I think that's great. Colin, how many memories? Um, and to, to go even further back than our uh, getting the PhDs, uh, back into the 1960s, late 60s, when we were both engaged in the struggle to, to try to recast the way in which scholars uh, approached their own discipline. Scholars of Asia approached their own discipline um, to make it uh, more real, more aware, uh, more empathetic to the people they were studying uh, and more attractive to Australians who might want to take up the study of Asia. So we go back uh, a long way and Colin, may I say, I, I think <clears throat> the whole country owes you for the extraordinary contribution you have made uh, to our 
uh, relations with Asia, Australia-Asia uh, relations, but also to uh, the struggle for what we call Asia literacy, that is to develop uh, a population in Australia that is literate about Asia, not just uh, knowing languages, because that's not going to be possible for everyone, but, uh, but knowing it well enough, in the, in, the, in the sense that we use the term to be economically literate. Um, uh, and that, and Colin has been at the forefront of that, and <coughs> pardon me, and very successful in what he's done. And of course, uh, his uh, great contribution to China studies uh, and to our uh, understanding of China in this country. And I was delighted to learn uh, just a moment ago that Colin is uh, still um, spending several months a year. Uh, lecturing in Chinese universities in Beijing and uh, I think the beauty part about this is that one of the courses that, well he teaches um, uh, a, a couple of courses what, one is uh, about Australian politics uh, and I think it's beautiful that you know, we have this distinguished Australian and Sinologist teaching Australian politics to Chinese students uh, but also about Australia-China relations uh, at, at that end of things. So, Colin, thank you very much, and thank you for your uh, very generous remarks. Um, my publisher said that uh, this event was to be um, with uh, readings from my book, so uh, I'll, I'll do that, and I'll, I'll give you some readings, and I'll intersperse them with a few comments along the way, so it's not a kind of quite a seminar in, in that sense. Can I say at the outset that I found um, writing, uh, I had reservations about writing uh, a memoir uh, for many reasons, but I, I have often found people's memoirs not all that attractive. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to write something, you know, like boring old fart looks back. Um, and, uh, and so, and it took me a while to kind of work out, you know, how to overcome that. Um, and one of the devices that I, I've used in the book is that most of it is written in the present tense to try to give it a sense of uh, movement. Uh, but um, what I, where I really found a voice, if you like, is that uh, I decided that I would try to weave my experience into the experience of Australia since the 1950s, when I was growing up in white Australia, um, a closed, inward-looking uh, country, um, as it opened out uh, to an acceptance of uh, Asia. So, um, I'll begin uh, with when I first arrived in Beijing to take up my uh, position as uh, ambassador. I present my formal letter of appointment as ambassador to Dong Bi Wu, acting president of China and in 1921 a founding member of the Chinese Communist Party. And afterwards we sit in armchairs not unlike those in the Peking Hotel but newer and better sprung and talk at length about a variety of things not altogether related to work. He's possibly the only living Chinese to have passed the old imperial exams under the Qing dynasty in 1901. Liver spots on his balding head, roomy eyes, spindly grey moustache, cantilevered teeth. 
one of early modern China's educated political activists, he abandoned the Confucian classics for a modern education, fought in the revolution that brought the empire down in 1911, and worked as a secret agent for the founder of the republic, Sun Yat-sen. Still alert and engaged, he asks about my book on China's relations with the overseas Chinese. Presumably, it's in his brief. He says, most overseas Chinese aren't leftist or revolutionary, but conservative, and in the past, like to have their remains sent back to China for burial. And most people, he says, don't know of a Qing Dynasty official who was so conservative, he even brought his own da bian, his own poo, back to be buried in Chinese soil. I'm one of those most people. Canberra will be fascinated by this, I think. As we finish, as we finish, he says, I'm getting on a bit, and in a few years I may have to start thinking about retiring. He's 86. <laughs> You're young, he says, and you should get to know some young people. Yes, of course, I say. Like who? Like Premier Joe, he says. Premier Joe and I. Joe is 75. <laughs> and this isn't a time in China when Joe or any other Chinese leader is someone you simply get to know, like having regular chats, playing bridge or tennis, or sitting down for a one-to-one -one lunch. But we're here, and we have an official relationship with China now when we haven't had one since 1949. And how we, Australia, came to be here is part of a remarkable story of change in policy, but more significantly in social attitudes to Asia and Asian people. It continued for more than two decades and still does in some measure, although against a newish tide of narrow nationalism that began under John Howard. The success of this change owes much to the leadership of ideas from politicians engaging and persuading the public, but also to the capacity for change by the Australian people when leadership is compelling, when the foreign policy and the pitch to domestic opinion have been in tune, there's been great progress. And it's worth more than all the celebration people give to, for example, ANZAC, because it's about a society that showed itself able to move from insularity and narrow intellectual horizons and racial exclusiveness towards being an open, tolerant and accepting one. So that is the kind of the background leitmotif of uh, this book. Um, the, and of course I was there in Beijing um, because of Whitlam and in, in some ways you could say this book is uh, a tribute uh, to Whitlam. Um, I first met him uh, in 1967 shortly after he became leader of the opposition um, and someone arranged for me to have lunch with him. It's with some diffidence I arrive at the lunch. After the introductions, there's a long silence while Whitlam studies the menu. He has said nothing other than the initial greeting. Finally, he looks up and says with the emphatic stress for which he's known and often parodied, I love food. 
He asks me to write an ideas and policy paper for him on Australia and Asia, and it's agreed I'll become an informal advisor. When I write the paper, its central idea is that if we're going to think about Asia in an entirely different way, and on that basis have a new Asia policy, we have to have a new US policy. Australia has a different set of national interests and issues from those of the United States. We have to live with Asia, not fight it, and we have to stop waging war and promoting corrupt and repressive governments in the name of freedom and for ideological ideas Labour does not espouse. The humanism and social democracy to which the Labour Party is committed dictate a foreign policy that should welcome post-colonial Asia, recognise its nationalism, value its societies, understand its anxieties and needs, engage with it in development and join with it in multilateral, regional and international cooperation, and get rid of white Australia. For a genuinely Australian foreign policy in Asia, reflecting our geopolitical position and our beliefs, we have to assert our independence within the US relationship and the alliance. Reading this paper in the time of Prime Ministers Whitlam, Fraser, Hawke and Keating, it hardly seemed radical, but set against the foreign policy of the day when it was written, it was. It was also idealistic in its assumptions about the extent to which Australia could influence events in Asia through being independent, but that's not something I'd repudiate. Australian foreign policy since the mid-1990s has suffered for want of idealism and independence. And reading the paper 50 years later, in today's context, there's a terrible sense of déjà vu. Now, the reason why I write that is because in recent times we've had uh, a lot of the same ingredients uh, in our approach to uh, our region, China and the United States that we had uh, at that time when I first uh, met Whitlam, um, particularly uh, in the fact that we seem not really to have uh, a China policy, and that goes for both sides of politics. There is no sense of a long-term, no vision, no imagination, but not even any narrative spelt out for the Australian public on where we might be heading, what are the, what are the upsides of uh, the relationship with China, what are the downsides, um, and including uh, the question of uh, leaning to the United States or not, uh, there has been the government and the opposition have simply not engaged in debate. Tony Abbott said to the, um, the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, when asked uh, what Australians thought uh, about China, uh, he said, well, it's about fear and greed. Now, <clears throat> I don't think that goes for the Australian populace in general. It might perhaps uh, have been the case for Tony Abbott himself, because we saw, we saw this in the extraordinary uh, decision-making, if that it can be called, at the time of the uh, Chinese Initiative for an Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank where we flipped and flopped back and forth. Um, first of all, we said uh, we'd be in it. Then, with some pressure from the United States, we said we wouldn't be in it. Uh, and then we said we would, but uh, 
China had to meet certain conditions of uh, governance and transparency. And then, without China having met any conditions at all, we said, we'll join. Um, this is what, what happens when you don't have any long-term uh, strategic view of these important uh, relationships. So now we have Malcolm Turnbull. Um, and uh, I must say that I'm uh, optimistic about uh, the prospects for uh, our foreign policy under Malcolm Turnbull, and I've heard him both in public and in private on some of these issues, uh, and, uh, and he can be very thoughtful and he's very nuanced about this. But he does, he does face uh, a situation which is going to be uh, quite challenging, uh, and this is uh, the, a lot of the final chapter of this book uh, is about this. And if I may just read a short passage from the end bit. Um, the confidence political leaders need in dealing with Asia and running an independent foreign policy has today become a narrow nationalism. The mature understanding at the end of the Keating years, now a gauche and superficial playing of friends and goodies and baddies. The thoughtful analysis of Asian issues is now self-referencing dogma, the imagined future glib slogans. The careful navigation of Asia's tensions and rivalries is now a tilt to one side, and independent foreign policy a thing of the past. Foreign policy has been marked by ad hoc decisions and thought bubbles, breaches of international conventions, ill-advised adventures against our national interests, gratuitous insults, and mendacious domestic spin on private conversations with foreign leaders. And that, as I've said earlier, goes for uh, both sides of politics. This is not to say that uh, everyone in uh, the past, in the, the 60s, or when I was uh, in China in the 1970s, but um, so, um, you know, this is not altogether something new. I mean, we had, I have to say, by the way, that 30,000 words have been cut out of this book before it was published. So, so a lot of the anecdotes uh, are no longer there. But, for example, you know, uh, shortly after I arrived in, in uh, Beijing, Deputy Prime Minister Jim Cairns turned up. And I, I'd say, I've always had a good relationship with Cairns, but in his meetings he seems as much interested in flagging his leftist credentials as in government business, as though he expects the Chinese to greet him as a hero of the left, a comrade, almost one of them in a way. And he's puzzled when the Chinese seem not to know of his leftist history or role in the anti-war movement. Um, and then next off the plane was uh, the leader of the opposition, uh, Billy Snedden. Um, welcoming officials at the airport ask what he wants to do in China, and he says the most important thing is to book his onward flight to Tokyo. <laughs> because he doesn't want to offend his Japanese hosts. Um, but, um, of course, um, you know, there were many such uh, incidents. Uh, interestingly, um, the one journalist uh, in writing one of the Fairfax uh, newspapers has actually uh, compared Malcolm Turnbull to Gough Whitlam. 
that's uh, kind of an interesting thought, but maybe in foreign policy, uh, well, we have to wait and see. Um, but uh, Whitlam uh, was a wonderful person to uh, work with. Um, he was uh, a leader of ideas, and he had vision, imagination. He was able to weave the narrative. He was able to go out uh, and uh, endlessly explain his case about China and relations with Asia uh, and to set out to persuade people, persuade people in the general public and bring them uh, to his view. Um, a senior Chinese official once said to me that he and his colleagues always felt extremely nervous when they, were, when they had to go and brief the Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai. And the reason for that uh, was because Joe always knew much more about the issues than they did. Um, and, and in some ways, Scott Whitlam was a bit like that. And he, he was a great person to brief, and he, he almost never forgot any of it. And here's one of my cherished examples of this. This is two days after he was elected Prime Minister in 1972. On Monday the 4th, I sit in Whitlam's office when he meets foreign affairs officials. I'm here because instructions will be sent to Ambassador Renouf in Paris to open negotiations on diplomatic recognition with his Chinese counterpart. There are other issues. Whitlam tells them our vote on the resolutions on Southern Africa in the United Nations General Assembly will be reversed immediately. They are reluctant and suggest it would be precipitate, and we should move only to abstention. Whitlam asks, how are the neighbours going to vote? And they start with New Zealand. No, he interrupts, I mean our new neighbours, the countries of the third world. Taken aback, they begin to list the Asian countries. Impatient again, Whitlam asks, what about Africa? He's told all African states will vote against the white southern African regimes. Whitlam. What about Hepwetbwini of the Ivory Coast? <laughs> There's an intake of breath. And Whitlam gives a short seminar on the foreign relations of African states, among which Hepwetbwini is an advocate of working with South Africa, to the consternation of African colleagues. It's over in a few minutes but it dramatises for everyone in the room not only that there's been definitive change in Australia's foreign policy, but also that Whitlam might know more about some things in international affairs than his senior advisers. It's a pointed message, and with some reluctance, the senior establishment in the department <coughs> mostly falls into line. But there was one occasion on which, uh, in my experience, uh, Rarely, he, he actually, his memory uh, didn't serve him. Um, and that was in the famous meeting with uh, Mao Zedong in uh, 1973, when Whitlam, by this stage as Prime Minister, he comes on a visit to uh, China. I should say um, that uh, a couple of years ago, the ABC um, did uh, a documentary on Whitlam, and in that documentary it was claimed 
by someone that in the meeting with Mao, Whitlam is uh, supposed to have said to Mao, what would have happened in 1963 if it had been Nikita Khrushchev, who was assassinated, and not John F. Kennedy. And Mao is supposed to have replied, well, Aristotle Onassis would not have married Mrs. Khrushchev. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, that conversation didn't take place. Uh, But this one did. We're, We're in the meeting with Mao. Whitlam mentions Deng Xiaoping, who's been assigned to host him on the informal parts of the visit, and asks why he wasn't around until his rehabilitation earlier this year. Mao says it's because the question of Lin Biao hadn't been settled, and he goes into a rambling story about Lin colluding with the Soviet Union as far back as the time of the anti-Japanese war. We're into history, and Whitlam says... From his reading, it seems the Soviet Union wasn't always helpful to the Chinese and at times directed them to actions that proved disastrous. Like the Nunchang uprising, he says. I understand, Premier Zhou, you were the leader of that uprising. I look at him in astonishment. This, for most non-Chinese, obscure event in Chinese history took place in 1927 after the Chinese nationalists broke a united front with the communists and staged a bloody uh, attempt to wipe them out. Two and a half years earlier, on that first visit to China with Whitlam, I'd given him background reading on the early history of the Chinese Communist Party and he'd absorbed it like a sponge. And now this obscure detail comes out in context, accurate, appropriate. And Joe and I caps it with a self-criticism about his responsibility for the uprising's failure. So that part, uh, Whitlam's memory uh, was in working order. Then there's this part. They are winding up with some comments from Whitlam about the roles of Mao and Joe in the Chinese Revolution, and Mao launches back into the discussion and asks Would your party dare to make revolution? And Whitlam says, we believe in evolution. And the meeting is reignited, and they talk about the theories of Charles Darwin, which Mao says he accepts, but they don't apply to historical changes in human society. He asks if the city of Darwin is named after Charles Darwin, and did he ever visit that city in the Beagle? And Whitlam has one of those rarest of moments for him when a detail escapes his prodigious memory and says tentatively that he thinks yes. A few days after his departure from China, I received the following telegram from Whitlam. It's vintage golf. Apropos my conversation with Chairman Mao, you should know that in 1836... Charles Darwin visited Australia as official naturalist aboard HMS Beagle, landed at Sydney on 12 January and visited Bathurst. On next voyage in 1839, Beagle, without Darwin, visited Darwin Harbour, which Captain named after him. Please make full confession of error to Chairman Mao and Premier (laughs) Joe and I. (laughs) 
and say that with the chairman's help, I shall now follow the correct line. <laughs> now, um, I'd like to finish with uh, some uh, selections from this about Malcolm Fraser. Um, in recent years, it's often been said that uh, Malcolm Fraser was a recent convert to the liberal and progressive ideas which he was espousing uh, publicly and uh, with which he uh, criticised the, the present generation of uh, politicians of both sides. That was not my experience. Um, during his visit, uh, there were a couple of quite spectacular leaks. Um, one was the complete transcript of the first day's talks with uh, the Chinese Premier, uh, Hua Guofeng. By that stage, Zhou Enlai uh, was already dead. Uh, and another, which was a contrived leak um, just to one of the journalists by someone in Fraser's party, uh, and that leak was uh, intended to derail um, discussions which uh, Fraser, or suggestions uh, from Fraser that there ought to be some uh, cooperation amongst China, Japan, uh, the United States and Australia in uh, dealing with uh, what Fraser saw as uh, an aggressive expansionism by the Soviet Union into uh, the Pacific uh, and into the Indian Ocean. But, as I say, uh, my experience was uh, somewhat different. For all that I'm mortified at the transcript disclosure, it's overshadowed something far more important and profound about which I feel deep satisfaction, even jubilation. If Whitlam had set out to sell a new idea of Asia, Fraser has it now in full measure. He has several times said pointedly in his talks with Hua Guofeng that ideological differences between us and regionally should be set aside. His repeated offers to consult with China on the most central concerns of Australian foreign policy and his insistent urging on Hua to agree to frequent ministerial and officials' talks go as far as anything Whitlam has said to the Chinese. But it's not just that. He's talked about Southeast Asia, Japan and India in a way that affirms he accepts this region as our primary international habitat. He's happier to have a closer relationship with the United States than Whitlam, but not happy at all with the US's lack of will to look after our interests in our region. And he's very happy to turn to China to boost that will if only it would play, which is an extraordinary leap from where the coalition was when it lost government in 1972. I think in inheriting Whitlam's foreign policy, policy he's actually been influenced by it and by the Whitlam worldview. It's an independent foreign policy with Fraser's twist. There's something else, too. He's spoken with feeling about poverty in the developing world, and against racism, 
specifically the race policies of white supremacist regimes in Africa. There's a humanity and compassion, not your public image of Malcolm Fraser. In our private conversations, we've found more shared views than either of us had imagined. In early 2012, at Fraser's initiative, I went to a small meeting in Canberra of people alarmed at the escalating Americanization of Australian foreign policy that was made plain during the visit to Canberra of President Obama in November 2011. I hadn't seen him in years. As, he, as we shook hands, he recalled the China visit and said with a grin, it was fun. Now, uh, here's an example of some of the fun. Um, before Fraser's visit, um, I had discussed with the Chinese Foreign Ministry what uh, he might do outside of the official talks. And uh, I suggested that, um, I said, well, look, he's a farmer, uh, and we should go and see a farm. Um, you know, perhaps a sheep farm. Um, they were a bit uh, nonplussed by this uh, request. Um, it was a difficult time in China. I mean, the Cultural Revolution was kind of over, but the Gang of Four were, were riding high. Anyway, they, uh, they finally said, OK, we'll go out to Xinjiang, um, out in uh, the far west, um, and there we can see some nomadic uh, sheep farmers. Um, so we flew to Urumqi, and uh, this is what happened next. We drive in convoy out of Urumqi across desolate, stony, grey-brown desert, past occasional struggling oases, and without warning, a mountain looms, and we're in a steep ascent with a sparkling river tumbling down in leaps and waterfalls beside the road. Almost as suddenly, we're in pastures and evergreen forest and seemingly close to the snow-covered celestial mountains, and we drive down to a wooded shore beside Celestial Lake, and there's no one but us in this wondrous wilderness. <coughs> they brought musicians, and under an open-sided shelter, a woman named Radia dances in sinewy seductiveness, and the music invokes Tashkent, Bukhara, Samarkand. They invite us to join, and Malcolm and Tammy begin and call the rest to follow. Our Hun Chinese companions from the east, perhaps mindful of bourgeois deviation and political struggle, look on and do not join. <laughs> we have snacks and tea, and it's time to go, and no one knows where Fraser is. I go in search and find him with Foreign Trade Minister Li Tiang round the back of a shed swigging whiskey from the minister's hip flask. <laughs> the convoy starts back, and when we reach the pasture, stops at felt yurts beside the road. Sheep farmers. My wife Gay and I go into one yurt with the Frasers and Li Tiang and the chief of protocol, Zhu Chuanxian. We sit on carpets facing our hosts. They've cooked the whole sheep, but we're an hour late and the fat is congealed, somewhat. 
the head of the family hands Fraser the sheep's head and Jewel whispers to him that it's okay to cut a slice from the cheek, eat it and hand the head back. Fraser does this and they talk about raising sheep. From his other side, I hear Tammy in a low voice, Darling! Darling! Darling takes no notice. (laughs) I look behind Fraser and see Tammy has been given a piece of the sheep's tail, which is all fat, and there's no one from protocol on her side to explain. She tries Darling again, but he's talking wool. So, in an act of heroism, she eats the congealed tail. In the name of Australia-China relations and the great harmony between people of various nationalities, so to speak. And keeps it down. For which she deserves the Order of Australia. After this, it's no surprise that she balks at the fermented mare's milk and conceals it for later disposal. In a room that night, we have a whole sheep banquet and dance again, uninhibited, in Turkic caps now, to the sensuousness of Turkic strings and flutes and drums. And the Australian media, invited to sing an Australian song, sing, or more accurately, render, an advertising jingle, I like aeroplane jelly. (laughs) And our Chinese hosts are puzzled that a song about jelly could be an Australian national song. It was fun. And in the history of our relations with China, uh, there has, of course, been a lot of uh, the seriousness and uh, the serious purpose of building the relationship, but there has also been a lot of fun, uh, and I hope that uh, there will continue to be uh, a lot of fun in this great mixing up between Australian and Chinese people. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.